If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Harry, and I'm an assistant producer here at the IAI. And I'm Amari, one of the senior researchers here at the IAI. Today we've got The End of Good and Evil, featuring anthropologist and Harvard University professor Richard Wrangham, renowned philosopher and cultural critic Slavoj Zizek, University of Herefordshire professor Maria Balaska, and the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. This took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Amari, tell us a little bit more about this debate. I mean, this is just an extraordinarily exciting panel. This debate explores if we should give up on the idea that humans are either inherently good or evil, and instead conclude that all of us are a bit of both all of the time. I think it's really interesting here because not only do we have the outstanding Slavoj Žižek giving his witticisms and critique of the modern world, but we have the enigmatic Rowan Williams giving us not only a spiritual defence, but a defence of cultural and societal norms which have been at the heart of how we live our lives. And then with the addition of Maria Belaska giving us the philosophical perspective and anthropologist Richard Rangham giving us the biological perspective, we really cover all bases in this debate. Yeah, of course, morality is both a sort of a scientifically studied phenomena and a philosophical one, as well as religious. Rowan Williams is one of the most uh, erudite and interesting people I think I've ever had the good benefit of seeing speak. And it's a, it's a real incredible opportunity to get to see him and Slavoj butting heads on the same topic of such enormous worth as this debate about morality. But remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on a platform of your choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this amazing debate, Miriam Francois. Thank you so much for being here. Whether we see humans as essentially good or essentially selfish and violent has been central to our politics, our account of society and our vision for social progress. But is this very distinction itself a mistake? Recently, Harvard scientists have shown humans to be both the kindest and most malevolent species on the planet. 
While figures like Hitler and Stalin, though responsible for tens of millions of deaths, were also remarkably empathetic in aspects of their private lives. Should we give up on the idea, therefore, that humans are either inherently good or bad and conclude that all of us are both at the same time with potentially profound consequences for our political beliefs? Or is it vital to retain the distinction to alert us to danger and to drive personal and social change? Or more profoundly, are the categories of good and bad themselves the underlying error and unhelpful and even dangerous ways of categorizing human behavior? We have a fantastic panel here with us. Richard Rangham is an anthropologist and primatologist and professor of biological anthropology at Harvard University. His most recent book, The Goodness Paradox, fascinatingly sheds light on how evolution made us both more and less violent. Slavoj Žižek is a philosopher who breathes new life into Marxism, Hegel, psychoanalysis, politics, film, and culture. Maria Belaska is a psychotherapist, writer, and philosopher at the University of Hertfordshire. Her book, Wittgenstein and Lacan at the Limit, Meaning and Astonishment, brings together philosophy and psychoanalysis on the significance and the challenges of experiences of astonishment. And last but certainly not least, Rowan Williams is the author of several best-selling books, including Being Human, Bodies, Minds, Persons, and Candles in the Dark, Faith, Hope, and Love in a Time of Pandemic. I ask you all to give them a very warm welcome. So the way we're gonna do this is each panel member now has two, max three minutes to lay out their pitches according to the following question. And Rowan, I'll throw to you. Should we give up on the idea of humans being either inherently good or evil? Yes. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> you are saying this as a Christian. <laughs> we'll, get saying... there. we'll get there, sorry. <laughs> yeah. This is the pitch, this is just the pitch. <laughs> I'm saying we should give up on the idea that human beings are essentially good or essentially evil because I can't give any sense to that question, to be honest. Human beings are damaged, changeable, vulnerable, capable, incapable. Where along that spectrum we place ourselves or anyone else is one of the biggest cultural and ethical issues we could possibly be concerned with. But we're always reaching for apparently simple answers to questions about human nature which almost any available answer is going to be not just unhelpful with, but possibly destructive. So the short answer is, no, we should not think of human beings as essentially this or that. We shouldn't give up on the categories of good and evil, more on that later. We should think what it might be to look at ourselves and one another as, well, sites, places, where very different things unfold. And I hope the unfolding will be part of this conversation. Thank you very much. Um, Ria, uh, should we give up on the idea of human beings either being inherently good or evil? I agree. I think um, we should give up on that idea because if we were inherently one or the other, then the idea that there is such a thing as um, improvement in our moral lives would make no sense. And yet we do strive, we often fail, but also we often succeed in becoming better as individuals. And so if there is such a thing as moral progress, then that means that there is no inherent um, good or evil in humans. 
And um, what I want to contribute today to the debate as a philosopher is to, instead of trying to categorize all humans in such a generalized manner, whether they're good or evil, is to think of good and evil as conceptual frameworks and um, think of what these concepts do for our lives and for the way we understand morality. Thank you so much. Richard, over to you. Well, I'm not sure if I agree or disagree um, <laughs> so far. So um, I guess what I, I think is that um, we need to define evil uh, as uh, something like acts of intentional violence of which we disapprove. Uh, in other words, evil is not a, a natural category. It is a category that is uh, brought to us through social action. Uh, we need to have a social decision about what is evil and what is, what is not evil. And uh, in this, um, I'm, I'm bound to bring up the fact that almost all killing is done in the name of morality. <laughs> uh, somebody thinks that it is a moral thing to do, and someone on the other side thinks it's not a moral thing to do, whether it's, you're talking about honor killings or, or war uh, in defense of your, uh, your country. So I just want to you know, emphasize that, uh, that evil is relative. But having said that, it seems to me that we should uh, definitely think of uh, both goodness and evil as uh, things that are inherently associated with our species. Uh, I think that uh, it would be uh, burying our heads in the sand to think that evil is not a characteristic of the human species as a whole. I think also it's characteristic of some individuals, some psychopaths, but uh, not all individuals at all. And it's certainly characteristic of some uh, ideologies. So we have to unpack it in, in slightly complex ways, but, uh, but I want to insist that, uh, that humans are, uh, have an inherent potential for evil from the perspective of the people who we might find ourselves killing. Thank you very much. Slavoj, should we give up on the ideas of humans either being inherently good or evil? It looks as me, who is usually dismissed as a vulgar materialist, I'm here tempted to advocate a more fundamentalist, even a Christian stance. I'm an atheist Christian, which would say what we understand as evil, basically, is I would like to connect with what Rowan said, how human beings are basically damaged, vulnerable, and so on and so on. So for me, the only consistent answer, a very materialist one, uh, to how did we become human is that at our level of animal life, something went terribly wrong. And then as a reaction to this, to patch up this lack, we culture emerged. So what I would have, uh, what I have said is that I also deeply agree with your point that evil, uh, 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 fundamental and so on, you know what's my point? Uh, my materialist Hegelian reading of evil, in Christian terms, the fall. I think, here I'm crazy, the fall opens up the space for the good. Before the fall, there is no good, because fall is more, for me, not simply fall into sin. Fall is uh, fall from some organic immediate unity into this vulnerable open state. And it's incidentally to make Hegel actual in a wonderful, very materialist way. Hegel in his anthropology, the beginning of third part of Encyclopedia, is 
more intelligent than Michel Foucault, where he says that the first stage of being human is madness. We are animals which got lost, no instinctual compass and so on. And then to control this potential evil, we built civilization. So I think that, yes, I totally agree. Uh, culture is contingent, uh, uh, socially, uh, and so on and so on. But you have to presuppose that this is always against a background of a certain fundamental disorientation loss which defines human species. So no, no good without evil. And I think if you think you can have good without poten evil potential, you end up doing real evil. What you brought out, this is absolutely crucial that no Nazi killers and so on, they are not this demoniac romantic evil, no. They are guys who simply think they are doing the, the greatest self-sacrifice good for their own narrow group and so on and so on. Sorry. Thank you very much. We are definitely coming back to that. Um, in fact, our first theme that we are going to explore is our good and evil objective. Are they objective categories or are they categories that we've made up to make sense of ourselves? And I'm going to throw to you, Richard, to open up for us on that. Well, uh, pursuing my, my previous comments, I absolutely do not think that uh, they are objective com uh, categories at all. They are moral categories. Uh, and so the origin of good and evil can be seen as um, the origin of the sense of right and wrong, uh, the origin of morality. And, and humans have a morality of right and wrong that no other species does. We are unique in that respect. There's a kind of morality of sympathy that, uh, that some, some animals can have for each other, uh, but a morality that says this is right and this is wrong, that doesn't exist outside us. And, uh, and I actually think that uh, there's a pretty persuasive argument that we can work out uh, when the morality uh, of fairness that humans are characterized by began. Uh, and uh, if we had longer, I would say that it is 300,000 years ago. That you know, there's, there's a some point at which uh, coincides with the origin of Homo sapiens uh, that um, our lives changed. And we developed a sense of right and wrong. And why was that? It was because society changed in such a way that there became a dominant alliance in society, made up, I think, of males, uh, who were able to impose what they considered right and wrong. And at that point, good became a category of things that are in line with, conform to the motivations and uh, wishes of the dominant alliance. They were able to impose this because they had the power of executing anybody in the group. And evil became things that are not in line with the dominant power in the group. So a very uh, relativistic, subjective concept of good and evil. Thank you, Richard. I, I think that might be a good place to bring you in, Rowan, on um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing maybe you don't agree that good and evil don't exist outside of ourselves, but yes. going out on a limb. Yeah, but that's a yep. very accurate guess. Um, <laughs> I think there's a possible confusion here. There's, there's certainly a story to be told of how concepts of good and evil emerge, how concepts of right and wrong emerge, but I think that what Richard has just outlined is, to my mind, reductive. In that, good and evil 
are not simply about power as those concepts have evolved over the millennia. And I don't think we can now reduce them simply to contests of power. If they were all just about who has the right to the power of life and death, then I don't think it would ever be imaginable that people could say it is good to resist. But it is good to resist is one of the things that's been associated with an ethical standpoint ever since people have started talking about ethics, whether you go back to classical tragedy or to Hebrew Christian scripture or whatever. It is good to resist. Where's that from? Now, that's just one of the things I, I would find awkward about the, the it's broad... a deep resentment about the power exerted at their expense. But if you say it is good to resist, not simply it is imperative, well, I feel I must resist, but there is something to which the powerful should be accountable, which is not currently at work. Oh, well, I mean, the way I would think about it is that uh, the, those who are saying it's good to resist are shifting their moral framework from the dominant power in the group to the group of resistors. So the dominant power in, in the overall group does not, in fact, have an absolute control over the notion of good. That's right. Absolutely. Well, I... Oh, yes, yes, it, it, let's, it's a contest. <laughs> let's bring it's a contest in. among power groups. Uh, let's bring Maria in on this. Cause maybe you can uh, help us understand these categories, uh, constructed categories, yeah. useful categories. I, I think that the, this distinction between subjective and objective should be approached with great caution. And I think it's problematic because it suggests that moral categories are not as real or as binding because they originate in our practices or language. But the fact, I think, that moral judgments are not objective in the way that truths of physics are, are held to be does not make them subjective. Um, nor does, does it diminish the authority of those judgments. So I think good and evil are indeed human categories that we made uh, to make sense of ourselves, and they are objective. And by objective, I mean that they are something that we can offer definitions for, good or bad definitions, and something we can reason about. Um, but objectivity cannot be detached from you know, our history and our practices. I want, however, to add something which I hope can kind of cut through this problematic distinction. And that's an idea that I'm very fond of, the idea that goodness has a special link to realism or to reality. And that's an idea that has recently become more prominent thanks to work, the works of uh, philosophers like Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch, and more recently Cora Diamond, who link goodness to successful perception. Weil calls it attention, and she says that love is the highest form of attention. And Murdoch argues that being good allows us to look at reality more objectively. So this is a view we already find in Plato uh, when he likens the good to the sun, that is something very illuminating. So how, how can we think of this connection between being good and seeing clearly or, or in a way that is realistic? I think there are many ways, but one way I want to suggest is that when we try and perceive a situation clearly, uh, what we need to do is give our full attention to the situation. And often, especially when there are certain vices involved, like, for example, envy or vanity, our focus is too much on our own selves, and that way you can't see the situation clearly. So that's a way to understand how being good can actually give you, it's not just objective, but it gives you access to reality in a kind of privileged way. And I find that very interesting. Thank you very much. Slavoj. Oh my God, uh, it's complex because I agree and disagree yeah, with sure. almost all of you. <laughs> my, uh, my problem is first I agree with this that today 
it's put as in the conflict between those advocates for whom sex is natural and LGBT and so on. First, I don't think that this distinction is clear between, to put it vulgarly, nature and culture. Let's take sexual identity, how you identify. I agree with LGBT people and so on that it's not immediately given. You can culturally identify as a woman, man, trans, and it cannot be deduced from your biological identity. But at the same time, I don't think, as sometimes they put it, that it's simply a matter of personal choice. I feel a woman, I feel a man or whatever. I think that there is, and the same goes for me then with the problem of good in evil. It's not, if we say it's socially determined, and it is, it doesn't simply mean it's arbitrary and subjective in this narrow sense. I would like to advocate this paradox that our fundamental decisions are unconscious. I repeat always this part, I'm sorry, in the sense of, yes, it is contingent, but you are never in a position, external position to choose. It's like you mentioned love, falling in love. You never look at it, okay, I want to fall in love, you are beautiful, you, you, let me compare your features. No, falling in love means, and here I don't see clearly your point on clarity, falling in love means for me something, a great exclusion. You not only see things clearly, but my cynical mind, to see some things clearly. There are many other things that unconsciously you choose not to see clearly. Like we as a civilization, only now we are becoming aware, we decided what happens to pigs, to chicken and so on, an immense amount of suffering. We were taught to really, to simply uh, ignore that. Or again, falling in love, you never fall in love. All of a sudden, you realize that you are in love. And I think it's the same with religious identity. It's an obscenity, as Kierkegaard knew it clearly, to say, I was reading Jewish texts, Christian texts, and whatever, Buddhist texts, and my God, I found the, uh, the, the arguments for Christianity the best. No, Kierkegaard answers, to see the arguments for Christianity, you already have to believe at some level. So it doesn't mean it is irrational. It just means that you can see clearly reasons while once you have already chosen. Now this brings me, I don't want to get lost to your problem. I tend to agree with you, this kind of, you know, good and then what doesn't fit it is evil. But now comes to me a key, key question. I think you, Rowan, were aiming also in a different way at it. But uh, those who protest the predominant form of good in a certain society, like women or slaves in a patriarchal society. Do we necessarily have to use the categories of good and evil uh, to protest? Like, this would be the classical criticism, no? where you say, sorry, you are saying you are good, but I can show how you are inconsistent that it's not really good, it produces evil effects and so on and so on. So is for you, if good is what is defined in the terms of predominant, male, whatever, if 
resistance to good, necessary put in the same terms of good versus evil, or can we say, and I don't think we can, maybe in some versions of reference to Nietzsche, that there can be resistance which is not in itself morally grounded. That was the dream from Nietzsche to Deleuze, uh, to Deleuze and so on and so on. Just to conclude, then I will be shorter. The third thing, that's what I want to do thing. I want to complicate things. That is to say, as you said correctly, my God, all the big killings were not done by private perverts who did it for fun. They were done for the good of the nation in, in the highest moral terms. So I think that uh, the best argument against absolutization of any form of the good is not just the historicist one, it's relative. It's also to point out with an immanent critique how that form of uh, good produces necessarily catastrophic consequences. Like to conclude, and then I will speak less, to Rowan. He's one of my eternal books. It's like I'm almost tempted to say like uh, Iliad, Homer, Sophocles, Dante, Shakespeare, and Rowan's book on Dostoevsky. <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> you know, he does something incredible. Dostoevsky's <laughs> idiot is usually playing that too good for this world, you know, pure and so on. No, he's really a catastrophic idiot. He does something horrible by being good in the wrong way and so on. He causes only catastrophe around himself. Look what happens to Nastasia Filipova, to other... You cannot say they are in themselves evil. It's uh, that uh, idiot Prince Mishkin triggers. He's good in a deeply wrong way. The best, the most evil intentions can... Sorry, evil acts can be justified by a certain form of evil. Uh, sorry, can lead to evil consequences. And that's crucial today. Everybody wants to be extremely good. The worst of Nazis, the worst of Stalinism, they were full of common good and so on and so on. But, but, but so, sorry, so am, I, am I hearing across the panel here that you all believe that good and evil are socially determined, constructed categories? Because I'm struggling with that as like, you know, I don't know. So, so kindness, showing compassion is only socially constructed, you know, torturing an animal, torturing a small child, just socially constructed ills. There's nothing objective outside of the social construction. No, but here I agree with you. They have wrong notion of subjective object. Subjective doesn't exactly. mean That's the, the way I feel today. I, know. I, I think it's interesting you say only socially constructed <laughs> because clearly any ideas that we come up with are in some sense socially constructed. We have discovered them in language in social interaction. That doesn't mean that the language we, we develop about good and evil is purely arbitrary. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing I, I want to drive at here against any notion that is simply arbitrary, as it would be if it were just about power. I recognize the power dynamic always at work in ethics, which is why the crucial ethical labor is always to try and discern what here is not just about power. Let's go back to um, Maria's issue about um, the, if you like, the widening scope of clarity that we might, we might grow into. And picking up Slavoj's point, we now are aware of 
a moral issue, let's say, about the treatment of animals, which 150 years ago we would not have taken on board particularly. Something has shifted in the tectonic plates. We are aware of what we sometimes refer to as claims and rights. Let's bracket the usefulness of that language for the moment, but shorthand. Claims and rights which hitherto we had not acknowledged. We have understood that the density and complexity of certain kinds of human identity have claims on us that we have brushed aside historically. Now, that's the kind of clarity I think we are ideally growing towards. It can also lead to new imbalances, new ways of ignoring. And I think, again, one of the interesting questions we can always ask about a moral situation is, in this argument, what are we being encouraged to ignore? And who are we being encouraged to ignore? Because that's another kind of power question. So I, I don't think that to say social constructs is just to say, we can make it all up. It's to say there's a labor involved here, to good, use a good Hegelian term, there's labor involved here. But that doesn't mean it's, oh, I can choose. Um, we're going to have to move on to the next scene, but feel free to come back because obviously I'm conscious that there were points raised that you might want to come back to. Um, our second theme for today is, is it vital to identify good and evil characteristics in humans to alert us to danger and drive action? Slavoj, we'll kick off with but you. But as Roman said, I would say that, uh, uh, what do you mean by identify good and evil characteristics? Because what happens in tectonic changes like we have them today? is that we don't have simply to identify, we re-identify. There are new cracks appearing and so on and so on. And this is what is crucial today. I agree with Rowan and maybe even you from your evolution stuff, you would agree that something radically is changing today. Like uh, that's why in principle, although I'm for many of them a bad guy, I think originally, not what became afterwards when it was appropriated by upper middle classes of white Americans. Uh, 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 Me Too is uh, originally a tremendous tectonic shift, which basically, here I agree with you, if I got you correctly, which changes the coordinates. It's not, it's even earlier than class society. It's basically probably, if you look in, root Marxist perspective as origins of exploitation, blah, blah. It's Neolithic uh, settlement. There you have fixed uh, sexual uh, uh, identities, patriarchal rule, and so on and so on. So for me, what is to, uh, to avoid dangers? We have to see what these changes mean. The danger is for me not to avoid changes but to be very careful what changes will bring. I'm saying this is still some kind of a communist. Look, yeah, October Revolution, big thing, but wait for 10 years, you get Comrade Stalin, you know. Like uh, the true historical mind, Hegel was here the master, is to see immediately a potential of evil in what is originally proclaimed, declared as a new step towards Goodness. That the, again, that's the most important thing for me today. For example, that was Hegel's problem with French Revolution. He didn't simply dismiss terror. He said it was a necessary stage, but nonetheless, he said from French abstract liberty, egalité, liberté, the immediate result is terror. And then the second stage, maybe you can make something 
good about it. So again, today, more than ever, the situation is complex, and I will go up to this wired brain, new forms of social link, and so on. Who knows what will come out of it? Dangers are always here. There is no progress without or without extreme dangers. So that's crucial for me to analyze the tectonic changes that are happening today. Because again, me too means maybe you wouldn't agree here. I don't believe in primitive well, matriarchate well, in. and so on. Yes, but I think that me too is deeply challenging the entire history from Neolithic onwards. But even here, sorry, women will now lynch me, there I see even new dangers there. I don't think that necessarily if women replace men, there will be more egalitarian. But who knows what it will be? I'm always in principle a pessimist. That's the only way to be optimist. If you're directly optimist, you're always disappointed. Richard, if you're a pessimist, let's, there let's, are here and there nice surprises. Let, well, let's see what Richard, <laughs> Richard what, are your, what are your responses to that? Um, well, let's see. You were pointing to the fact that um, this is kind of pushing against an, an ancient dynamic. And, and I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. But, and, and there's no but, reason why you shouldn't. You yeah. know, because, because the, it's all a matter of practicality as to whether or not these alliances work and, and who is able to command power in the society. And if society changes in ways that enable the power differentials to be different, then the, the moral framework changes. So, so that's good. Um, but I want to come to the question. To the, yeah, yeah, please, about good yes. And, evil, you know. uh, and, so, and about identifying them as characteristics in people, whether uh, well, that's helpful. Yes, yeah, so, so I've got to, sort of two contrary examples. Um, and, uh, and one is at the individual level. Um, so it seems to me that at the individual level, it actually is rather helpful to be able to identify, I mean, it doesn't really matter about identifying the good, although it's kind of nice and charming, but, uh, but it's important to identify the evil. And when I think of the evil, I think about people who have no sense of morality at all. And there are a very small proportion uh, of people, uh, more men than women, uh, who, for whom that's true. And they are dangerous. They are dangerous to the rest of the society. And being able to identify them as that, it seems to me a practical value to the society. Thinking of but, people like psychopaths, people who don't have a sense of the wider moral compass, is that? Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the, the psychopath uh, who, who murders his wife uh, uh, and, uh, and does it in very ingenious ways that uh, allow him to go off and murder the next woman uh, because he's not found guilty. You know. So, so, you know, that's, it's a kind of small point in the larger concept of human problems, but it's, I think it's, a, it's worthwhile remembering that real evil can exist. But then at the larger level, what worries me about the use of the word evil is that it is so extreme. It conjures a sort of vision of, um, uh, of irredeemable uh, lack of virtue. And I, I think about this in the context of something like the, uh, the abortion debate, where uh, when people start talking about evil on either side, then that licenses people on their own side to commit murder in the name of saving lives, you know, which is you know, absurd. Um, I think that, that by avoiding the use of the word evil, you can just lower the temperature a little bit. Thank you, Maria. I want to say two things here. One is just responding directly to the comment you made about evil and to bring out a tension that I think Arendt also brings out. That on the one hand, it is important in some cases when um, something happens that seems to go beyond violence, beyond aggression, beyond just even viciousness, 
you want a term that wants to say this has disrupted the moral fabric in a way that I need to call it, you know, evil. But Arendt also says that radical evil doesn't exist in the sense that she says that it's shallow and, well, she uses the rather controversial term banal, but he, she uses this lovely picture of fungus or, or um, bacteria. She says bacteria can be quite, it's, it's just bacteria, and yet they can grow and grow and grow and develop so that on a surface level, they just kind of develop very much. And, and that's how she thinks about evil. So I think she kind of captures that tension that you brought out, that on the one hand, we feel that we want that word. On the other hand, we're not sure how much it, it can do. The other thing I want to say about why I think uh, goodness is a, and evil are important concepts is because I think they push against a view of morality that I find quite problematic and that is quite um, popular today. And it's when you reduce morality to either the social contract or uh, just a, a case of choice of what you, what you choose or what kind of action you do in terms of the consequences it has. And I think that sometimes calculating consequences, trolley problems that are very kind of popular in moral philosophy right now or for a while, uh, I think they can be appropriate for examples of our moral life, like you know doing our tax report or shopping sustainably. But I think there are also aspects of the moral life that require deeper concepts, like the concept of goodness, and where morality is not just a case of social contract, but kind of an infinite task where we go on that moral journey, not because of the consequences it has, but because we are happy in being good itself. Yes, I, I echo that very strongly. I think it is quite important to, to try and have ways of identifying what's good, not just nice, and not about niceness, but mm. goodness, in the sense that it's fair to ask the question, what kind of human being do I desire to be? Do I desire to see around me? Do I, I desire to be in conversation with? And as a culture, we're getting more and more confused, I think, about whether there is anything we can say about what style, rhythm, direction, tonality of human life we would call good. And that's, you know, that's a difficulty now. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly one of the areas where I'd go along with um, Simon Weil and others and say that there's something here about attention, about in the Christian tradition, a kind of parking of selfish and self-referential concerns for the sake of seeing more clearly. Second thing I'd want to put in though is um, to do with evil. I absolutely agree that there's a kind of turning up the temperature in the use of the word evil which is profoundly problematic because it, as you say, it licenses an absoluteness of rejection. So um, as soon as that enters into online or offline discourse, you think red light flashing. At the same time, from my religious point of view, I think I'd want to say, let's be a bit cautious about just supposing that evil is only applicable to the most extreme situations. What if evil is in some ways that pushing back against the grain of reality that all of us are involved in at one level or another? And that's, you know, that's quite strong in the theological tradition, in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions, and in, in its own way, of course, in Oriental religious traditions as well. There is a habit in us of pushing back against the real, refusing the real for our own concerns, our own comfort. Now, there is a strand of theological reflection which would say, well, that's what we mean by evil in the most general sense, not psychotic violence, not the most obviously 
identifiable examples, but the very small ways in which we can all become collusive in unreality, public and private lying, and the corruption of a moral imagination and selfhood that arises from that. So I, I want to reclaim evil for a more prosaic context as well and say, well, I recognize evil in myself in those moments when I'm more or less deliberately or lazily or corruptly just pushing aside a claim that is real for me. And that, that comes into the picture too. Can you be unintentionally evil then? Yes. Yeah. And that's back to somewhat Slavoj was saying. Um, I can have wonderfully good and idealistic intentions mm -hmm. and I can be so focused on those that they become another kind of lie, another kind of unreality. Mm -hmm. I'm pursuing an ideal and the body count is enormous. I just choose not to, not to look at the body count because that's their fault. So I press on, either individually or socially, with a program and a vision which, because it is fundamentally unreal or untruthful, is destructive. And the one word we haven't yet used about evil is destructiveness. And that, you know, when I talk about this in a more theological context, that's where I'd want to put the, the weight, this is destructiveness, the, un, the destructiveness of unreality or untruthfulness. Thank you, Ron. I want to open with you, Maria, on the third theme, which is if we abandoned good and evil as categories, what would we replace them with and what outcome could we expect from that? And I want to tie that into uh, another question that I have listening to the panelists around the kind of metaphysical categories that we're using of good and evil and the extent to which these can be ahistorical or ahistoricizing when we're talking about acts either by individuals or by groups. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, things that have happened in history that we often describe as evil when actually historically, if we look at them in their context, of course, evil is one metaphysical way of contextualizing them, but then we erase the history behind that without using the history to justify the history if we don't incorporate it, then we're just talking about some kind of like completely ahistorical form of, of evil that's sort of dropped out of, well, wherever it is that you think evil drops out of. <laughs> um, sorry, I've, I've ad added a lot on there. Yeah, yeah, so I'll try to connect the two bits of your uh, question. I think the fact that um, it is, I, I think actually it is possible to speak about evil or good, even with, even if we do, um, or even because we do recognize it as historical categories. I don't think one takes uh, anything away from the other. I think you can say something about slavery, um, even though you recognize you know, what slavery was from in, in that context, and you realize that it's a different historical context, and you need to pay attention to that context and what people thought. Um, but it's, it's precisely because of the historicity or, um, of, of that, of how deep, deeply... Uh, involved with our practices, uh, good and evil are, that I think that the answer to this, this question that you first posed, whether we can imagine a, a culture or a society or a world without it, is that it's very difficult. And that's because I think there's something really naive and dangerous about um, imagining that we can just get rid of concepts easily like that, because concepts are not just tools or, or mental constructions that we can just decide to switch on and off from. Uh, when we engage with a concept, I want to say we engage with the world and the specific aspect of the world that the concept makes present. So I think that if you want to alter concepts, 
you actually need to alter your, you, your world. You need to transform your practices, how we act, how we think, how we relate to each other. This doesn't mean it's impossible, but it means that we need to imagine a very different form of life if we want to imagine a world without the concepts of good and evil. And I, I'm, I'm just going to add this too. If we did a little thought experiment, we thought, oh, maybe we can just avoid using the word good and just only use words for virtues. So instead of saying this person is good or not good, we might just say, oh, this person is coward or this person is uh, generous or whatever. But the thing is that the virtues themselves are defined in relation to the good. They are virtues because they serve the good. So we kind of reach with the concept of the goodness what Wittgenstein called bedrock. It's a kind of given that is very hard to explain and very hard to live without, and yet it's also very important for explaining other things. Thank you. Um, I want to bring you in, Richard, at this point, but I, I also want to kind of um, explore the example that you gave of slavery, because I do think that sometimes it feels to me that when we talk about slavery in terms of it being an evil, which it was, we also then um, sort of uh, are not obligated to examine the historical processes that brought us to slavery. It was just evil. Well, you know, what are the links to you know, contemporary forms of capitalism? What are the links to the ways in which our societies have been constructed? What part do each and every one of us play in the very banal aspects of our lives that are yeah, part exactly. of that history? Yeah, and I think yes. sometimes good and evil can eradicate that. But so, Richard, <laughs> uh, if you can pick up on, for us on both of those, kind of whether we, you think these categories are worth abandoning, what we might replace them with, and, and you know, any other thoughts you'd like to share. So, so to a large extent, we have abandoned the concept of evil, I think. And that large extent is the extent to which um, in centuries past, uh, evil was something that uh, was visited on humans or outside humans, um, whether it was a natural disaster or, or sometimes uh, it might be a, a human disaster. Um, so it seems to me that we have come to the point where uh, we treat uh, good and evil uh, as things that we can understand through... Um, sociological, um, behavioral analysis. Uh, and to, so the, the special category of evil is not something we really need, but it, it is a word that, is, that serves utility when people are suffering. So uh, George Bush, after 9-11, uh, he said, the nation has seen evil today. And he referred to the axis of evil. Well, you, you know, that's, that's worth thinking about this from an analytical point of view, but from a point of view of somebody engaged in the world in a very meaningful manner, you know, this was huge in terms of rallying people around. The trouble is that, um, I mean, in addition to the sort of the galvanizing point that, that Rowan and I were uh, pointing out, um, I think it also uh, tends to reduce the degree to which we are analytical in thinking about what's happening. Because if we have the concept of evil, it's as if we can't do anything about it. I feel sort of cautious and nervous about the use of the word evil uh, because of its, uh, its galvanizing and its distracting aspects. Rowan. Yes, I, I'm thinking about the way in which um, in the fourth, early fifth century, St. Augustine talks about the problem of the origin of evil. And I think he would, he would be insisting precisely that there is no such thing as evil. Evil is not the name of something 
or some person or anything. So be very, very careful about giving it that kind of substance that a bush might try to give you. Out there is something evil. Augustine says we're talking about a whole range of incapacities, disasters, wounds to our perception, our habit, our, our interrelationship. That's where the language belongs. And I've sometimes used the example with students of a, a wonderful New York New Yorker cartoon I came across years ago. Somebody's driven a car into a garage, the mechanic has opened up the engine, and there in the middle of the engine is a small, hairy, fanged demon. And the mechanic is saying to the car owner, well, there's your problem. <laughs> now, we think of evil like that sometimes. <laughs> and what Augustine and others are saying is, no, if the car's not working, it's because the, you know all sorts of little malfunctions have contributed to make this a destructive rather than a productive process that's going, going forward. Now, getting back to that model of evil, I, I find helpful just to avoid exactly this mythological, apocalyptic, all or nothing, zero-sum use of the term. But going back to, to the question about could we do without the language, um, my worry is what we're likely to replace it with or what, in fact, we are replacing it with. And when we're in a situation socially where good is very often a flabby synonym for productivity or conformity, I really have difficulties. I want to reach for something else and say, there are some things that have absolutely, forgive my theological language, damn all to do with productivity, conformity, etc., which I would regard as good, because I would see there some form of human behavior that I would regard as admirable, imitable, desirable. And to hang on to that as part of the moral discourse seems to me part of hanging on to any hope of moral talk at all. Savoy, last word to like you. Like Comrade Stalin, the final word before QMF. Okay, it sorry. Seemed, it Very seemed briefly, I will try to be brief. First, I cannot restrain from again referring to Saint Augustine, which who wrote a wonderful text. I hope you know it, De Nuptis and Cocuvicentia, which is wonderful. His point is precisely that sexuality is not evil, but a wonderful theory, a divine punishment for evil, which is to be like God, uh, to know too much. Because uh, he, for Augustine said that eating the apple means you get to know too much, you want to be like God, controlling, and then he has a wonderful theory, making some obscure Buddhist references, or to India, sorry, that uh, he said that there are even yogas in uh, uh, India who can even stop the heart beating. But one thing you can never control is erection of penis. That's why erection and sexuality is a sign like you think you are master no sorry even your penis you cannot control it so i love this crazy but let me go on to more serious stuff i agree with what you said about this uh, 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 social nature of evil and i'm not afraid to use the word yeah yeah we should understand look from within uh, uh, what we dismiss as evil, but please don't go into that uh, multicultural bullshit, for me at least, which says an enemy, evil enemy, is just somebody whom we were not ready to listen to, to understand. No, thanks. I, if you read Hitler, you will not discover a human side there or whatever. You will be even more horrified. That is to say, 
evil. We humans are masters in justifying horrible acts by constructing a narrative which makes them acceptable. Uh, Stalinists were masters indeed and others. Here I would like to return to uh, Hannah Arendt, who mentioned you. In a crucial text, early one, I think, she draws a wonderful difference between SA, the early Nazi tax, and SS. She said SA, those who were perched in 34, were vulgar, brutal evil, raping, beating, and so on. With SS, you get something much more horrifying. You get this cold, impersonal, bureaucratic evil. They don't have this type of passions and so on and so on. In this sense, I claim that we sh I would nonetheless be ready to talk with all reservations about, just two points to finish, about first social forms of evil. Let me take some in extreme example. It's really depressing, even if you check it just on Wikipedia. The Opium War, 1842-4, against China. I'm very close to say this was evil, because you cannot imagine what it did to China. 1820, China had a functioning system against hunger and drought. It was, its economy was not per capita, but absolutely three times stronger than British and so on. Then they did it on behalf of the notion of good and civilization. They prohibited import of opium. And the, uh, the Western justification was free trade is the condition of civilization. It's our duty, not only right, to invade China, to force it to be civilized. When I'm in Mexico or in the United States, I said, why don't you do this? And Mexican and uh, Colombia cartels declare war on the United States because they are prohibiting. To but you see what I'm saying? You cannot simply say they were bad. This was the dark side of the liberal market system itself then. Don't talk about liberal capital. And you have here across the sea, even the, almost the worst problem. Uh, you know that Ireland, uh, the potato famine, you know that Ireland was all that time even exporting wheat and so on. They believed that to mix immediately. Okay, so you got my point. <laughs> That's the last point, very last. Uh, you know, when we are talking about uh, ignoring evil and so on, aren't we today approaching something much more horrifying? We learned how to say, describe correctly things, but in a way that doesn't engage us. Like my example, it was disgusting. I would plant a bomb there if able. Remember two years ago, or the Glasgow Conference on Global Warming. It was all very ethical, even basically correct insights. But the very form precluded us to do something. So that's, sorry, just one sentence, literally, with a couple of commas and so on. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is, for me, the I problem. Mean... Give me the last example, I already mentioned it. I hate all those big biennales, Venice Castle. Their justification is pure anti-capitalism. We are all exploited by capital, uh, colonialists, blah, blah. And they declare this, and nonetheless, these biennales work in a perfect way as part of capitalist. So, you know, the tragedy today is you can say the truth, but it doesn't awaken us. Things just go on 
That's a great line to end on. I will take that. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of our panel. Thank you to you, the audience, for being here. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to leave a like on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.